A survey was conducted of Americans asking a very simple but important question. What do you want most in life? The number one answer? Happiness. No surprise there. In fact, Harvard University did a 75-year study verifying that fulfillment is what people most want. Happiness and fulfillment. That's what everyone wants. The problem is that most people have no idea what those even mean, let alone how to find and sustain happiness and fulfillment. So we spend our days and our lives searching, going down this path, hoping that will satisfy, going down this road, hoping there will be happiness, grasping at that, feeling like this might bring it, desiring this to bring it. And more often than not, it's like sand that just keeps slipping through our fingers. But what if there was wisdom that came from the one who designed us, from the one who created us, from the one who actually knows us better than we even know ourselves? What if God is the one who put in us a desire for true fulfillment, to be able to find life? And what if God is offering us a far more wonderful way to walk? That's what we want to talk about together this morning. So let's open in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What a joy it's been to walk through the journey of studying this book thus far as we've seen this amazing relationship between Paul and his team and this church that they planted in the midst of much opposition and difficulty. And now they've gotten the report back from Timothy and they're so encouraged that in spite of affliction, the Thessalonians are pressing on. And as Brian told us last week, God calls them and us to step out of comfort, to live on purpose as we await the coming of Jesus yet again. And now in verse 4, Paul's going to turn the corner and he has a word of exhortation for this church that he loves, and it's a good one for us as well. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul, again, speaks to them as his brethren, brothers and sisters whom he loves. But he says here in verse 1 that he is requesting and exhorting something from them in the Lord Jesus. And that use of the wording, request and exhort, is repetition meant to bring emphasis. In other words, hey, sit up and listen. But the unique thing about it is Paul says, you've already received instruction from us about this. It's not a new command. I'm not telling you something new. This is what we've been telling you from the very beginning. It's also not a word of rebuke. He's not saying, boy, you guys are really blowing it. In fact, he says, this is how you are walking. But he wants to, again, 
give this important instruction on how to walk and please God with the hope that his beloved church will excel still more. And then he brings even greater emphasis to his plea. He says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Remember, everyone, that this teaching is not just my opinion. This is actually commandments, and they are coming from the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. Wow, that is a strong introduction to his comments. And any follower of Christ who hears that ought to be wondering, what is he going to say? And this is what he says in verse 3. For this is the will of God. Now, let me stop for just one second. One of the questions that pastors probably get asked more than any other is, what is the will of God for my life? Often people will come to a, a pastor, sincere followers of Christ, when they're needing to make a decision. Some sort of big decision. Often it'll be about, what is my career supposed to look like? Or who am I supposed to marry? And they'll say, pastor, what is God's will for my life? And I always tell people the exact same thing. That is the wrong question. At least it's the wrong first question. Because when I ask the question, what is God's will for my life? I put myself at the center of the universe. And then God and everyone and everything else is supposed to revolve around me. And so what I like to tell people is a far better first question is simply to say, what is God's will? The more that I grow in understanding God and his character and his nature and his will, the more I am able then to understand myself and align my life to his purposes that he created for me. So there are many places in scripture where God speaks of what he wills and he speaks expressly and clearly and this is one of them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now that word sanctification means to be set apart. Interestingly, it comes from the same root that the word in uh, 3.13 where he speaks of holiness. Those words both come from the same root. In 3.13 it means simply holiness in itself. But here, as he now uses it in chapter 4, it will speak to the process or the state of being made holy. So what is God's will? It is that we would be set apart to walk in an entirely different way. A way in which we are experiencing the process of living out that which Christ won for us and becoming more like him. Being made holy. Holy. And then Paul is going to use a very specific illustration to underscore the importance of the point. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. There's the word again. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit 
to you. So what does it look like to walk in a completely different way? Well, Paul says a big part of it is to abstain from sexual immorality. And here in verse 3, he's speaking of the sex act itself. But he bookends that in verse 7 by speaking of not being called to the purpose of impurity. So this is a broad reference to any sexual immorality. In fact, in Paul's other teaching, in places like Ephesians 5, he says, Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity. He says, that ought not even be named among the people of God. So Paul is being crystal clear about the will of God. And God's will for his people is that we would have no involvement whatsoever with sexual immorality. God is not saying that sex is bad. It's great. It's created by him for a context. But there is only one context. And that is the one flesh covenant relationship of marriage. That's God's design. That's God's will. Now, I'm trying to be crystal clear on that this morning because we need to be crystal clear on that right now in the midst of the moment in which we live. Because we are now living in a culture in which the words sexual immorality have almost no application whatsoever. In fact, in our culture today, as long as it is consenting adults, anything goes. And so in the world that we live in today, there really is no notion of sexual immorality. Now, it would be really easy for us to sit here and say, yeah, that is a problem out there. But the statistics show that the beliefs out there are affecting us in here. As many Christians are no longer holding to a biblical understanding of sexuality. And so this text is for us right here today. And so Paul starts with a very clear statement about the will of God. God calls us to abstain from any form of sexual immorality. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. This word vessel is a challenge for translators. What is he saying? What does he mean in that? But it's probably akin to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where he says, we have this treasure, all that God has given to us in earthen vessels, referring to our bodies. So he's speaking here that we should know how to possess our own bodies. Now, possess, don't I already own my own body? What does that mean? But this word possess actually means to gradually gain complete mastery. To gradually gain complete mastery. So here's what Paul is saying. That in regard to sexual immorality, each of us, he wants us to know how to gradually gain complete mastery over our bodies in sanctification, being set apart to God's way, and honor. That's what God is calling us to. And it's the complete opposite of how people tend to live. Verse 5, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The word Gentiles here simply means unbelievers, people who have not yet experienced salvation in Jesus Christ through his finished work in his death, burial, and resurrection. People who have not yet experienced regeneration. People for whom the Holy Spirit does not indwell and empower to walk in another way. And how do people apart from God live? Driven by what? Passion, 
lustful passion. This is the reality of what we see in the world all around us, and it's part of what we struggle with as well, that people are increasingly living lives that are driven by their feelings and their desires, regardless of what those are. The mantra in our world today is be true to yourself. And many people are making bold statements and bold steps of action to live their truth. And what's usually behind that is some sort of very strong feeling. I really feel this way. Therefore, it must be true. And if I do not then act upon that feeling, I am living a lie. The problem is at the foundational supposition that all of our feelings and desires are true or good and not for our harm or the destruction of others. We live in a world increasingly where people, Christians and non-Christians alike, are living their lives driven by feeling and desire. Listen to these words from the book Renovation of the Heart. Allowing oneself to be carried away by feeling is actually sought by many and on a regular basis. That is a testimony to our epidemic deadness of soul. People want to feel and to feel strongly. And in the very nature of life, they need to do so. The dead soul is one that will seek out trouble for reasons it cannot understand. In its desolate life away from God, there is no drama to provide constructive feeling tones that would keep life from being a burden. Such persons really have no hope. This is the key to those, quote, lives of quiet desperation Thoreau attributed to most men. Feeling will then be sought for its own sake. In other words, we will live to have some sort of a feeling. And satisfaction in feeling alone always in turn demands stronger feeling. It cannot limit itself. This simple point is what explains the powerful grip of addiction, including the various forms of sexual addiction or even addiction to things like praise. Addiction is a feeling phenomenon. The addict is one who in one way or another has given into feeling of one kind or another and has placed it in the position of ultimate value in his or her life. Of course, addicts may also hold other things to be very valuable and their life usually will be torn and even tragic because of conflicts. But they nevertheless have inwardly conceded the final word to some feeling, emotion sensation or desire it may be that they have come to fear or even hate that feeling but that in their present condition their mind is blinded and they see no way out but in their heart of hearts they have accepted the rule of the feeling and have conceded its right to satisfaction this is the state of how many people, even most people in the world, are living today. Living lives surrendered to what we feel and what we desire. Therefore, we go about through life seeking happiness and fulfillment, believing that this and this will bring it because I feel that I strongly desire it. 
But this is the perspective of those who are apart from God, who do not have God's plan. And God's desire is the opposite, that we would be walking a different path in which we are gradually learning complete mastery over our bodies, including how we handle our feelings and desires. We also need to recognize our lives surrendered to feelings and desire are not without consequence. And verse 6 tells us that no man should transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Another myth in our culture today is the myth of the victimless crime. Once again, the thinking is, if it's two consenting adults, why should anyone else care? Why should anyone else have anything to say about it? It's just their business. But the lie is that this is actually not going to impact other people. And you know, much of what we see in our culture on TV, our movies, all the time in front of us is a picture and definition of love that is actually 180 degrees the opposite of what love really is. What is a good definition of love? Love is to will and to act for the benefit of another, not yourself. It is to genuinely want the best for someone else and to show up in a way that will bring it about. If two married people have an affair, they may say, we were in love. We needed to do it. We had no choice because we were in love. They may have felt in love, but the act is not loving because it is harmful to many people and even ultimately to themselves. It's harmful to spouses. It's harmful to sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and families and systems and communities and within the body of Christ to churches. Even when two unmarried people are involved in sexual immorality, it is harmful. It is, as the text said, it is transgressing, which means to wrong someone, and defrauding someone. It's robbing other people. It's robbing future spouses. It's robbing family members. It's robbing a church community. When we choose to follow our desires and step into sexual immorality, we are transgressing against others and defrauding, robbing from others. And the rest of the verse goes on to talk about God being an avenger in all these things. And I wonder, does that mean God's just vindictive? Whenever we blow it, boy, he is just out to get us? Absolutely not. Over and over in Scripture... We see the heart of God as a loving and compassionate and forgiving and gracious God. No matter how many times we blow it. No matter what we have done. God longs to be gracious to us, to forgive us, and to restore us. But let us not forget, the heart of God also breaks. For those who have been wronged by our surrender to sinful desire. It hurts other people, and that literally hurts God. And thus, God is a God of justice. And oftentimes, the way that justice plays out is simply through the natural consequences of life. 
It just so happens in my personal reading through the Bible, I just this week came to Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. And let me tell you, you cannot read those three chapters and not understand that there are consequences for sexual immorality. And the perspective of Scripture is not naive. Proverbs 5 literally says sexual immorality is like honey to the lips. It tastes sweet. Why do people desire it? It's attractive. We believe it will somehow bring us life. But boy, that proverb goes on to say that in the end it is like poison in the stomach. Because all that tastes sweet is not necessarily what is good for us. In chapter 6, an illustration is given. For the person who chooses to engage in sexual immorality, here's what the scripture says. It says you might as well go to your fireplace with a roaring hot fire. And you might as well take a shovel and scoop out the hottest of the coals. And you might as well dump them right in your own lap. Because you cannot play with fire without being burns. And any time we surrender to feelings and desires that are not a part of the will of God, it hurts us and it hurts others. And it even affects how we relate to God. Verse 7, for God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Again, God calls us not to living in a way that is pursuing impurity. The word sanctification here is preceded by in, which indicates an atmosphere. We ought to be living in an atmosphere of walking in a totally different way. And it's actually a more wonderful way. When we choose not to do so, though, in verse 8 we read, He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We are rejecting God. We're rejecting the goodness of God. We're rejecting the plan of God. We're rejecting the will of God. And God is the one who gives his Holy Spirit to enable us to walk in a more wonderful way. And the wording in the original language here of the Holy Spirit gives emphasis to the idea of that Spirit being holy. So here we are in 3.13, in 4.3, in 4.4, in 4.7, and here in 4.8, over and over and over is a call to holiness. A call to walking in a completely different way. But here's the thing. Almost any time I say to any person, be they Christian or non-Christian, God desires holiness for your life. What comes to your mind when you think of the word Holiness. Even for most believers, there's a negative connotation. There's a clinching up. It's like, yeah, yeah, that word. I know I, I'm supposed to do this, and I'm supposed to do this, and this. And I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do this. But man, it's just holiness implies the restrictive nature of God. It means that my freedom to be able to do that which I want is being restricted by God. And I'll tell you what, friends, our understanding of holiness is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Do you understand that God is perfectly holy? Perfectly holy. And there is no more joyful being in all of the universe. No being in the universe is more filled and overflowing with joy than the one who is completely holy. 
God is the very nature and essence of love. No one understands love. No one is love. No one gives love. No one can even receive love to the degree that God can because God is love. That's the nature of the one who is perfectly holy. God is always at peace. That's the nature of the one who is holy. And we have been given a bill of goods to believe a lie about the plan of God and the goodness of God. For what God longs for us is ultimately what we want for ourselves. Verse 9, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So in verses 1 through 8, Paul is referring back to 3.13 and this call to holiness. Now in 9 through 12, he's going to refer back to the other part of his prayer at the end of chapter 3, which is this desire for love. And he says in verse 9, as to the love of brethren, we don't even need to write you because you want this, you get this, and you are giving this. In fact, Thessalonian church, everyone in your province knows how you love one another. It is the hallmark of who you are. But even in spite of that, I want to encourage you, excel still more. What did he say to the Thessalonians in 3.12? He prayed for them that the Lord would cause you to increase and abound. Abound in what? In love for one another and for all people. Abound in love. This is the desire and the heart of God for us is lives that are abounding in love. He says that in 3.12, then in 4.1, in four, uh, uh, and in 4.10, he says, excel still more. Well, the root of what is translated excel still more comes from the same word as abound in 3.12. What he means is what I want for you is more and more and more. God does not want less for your life. It is literally impossible for you to want more for your life than God wants for your life. And when it comes to our deepest desires, at the heart of which is love, God wants you to abound in receiving love, in giving love, in love for one another, and in even being the kind of people who can genuinely love everyone, all people in the world. And that's God's call, to excel still more. So we must get rid of this twisted notion of holiness and believe that what God is calling us to is to walk in a more wonderful way. Now, I have heard many messages over the years on this text and others like it from churches all across our country, on the radio, different conferences, different places. And I'll tell you that most of the time when I hear somebody preach on this, if I were to summarize the application point, it'd be quite simple. The application is sexual immorality is bad. God doesn't like it. If you're doing it, it's bad. Stop it. Just stop it. And that's the application. And I want to tell you, it breaks my heart. Because I believe it breaks God's heart. 
Because, friends, we are struggling. Statistics show we are struggling. And we need to understand something more than just stop it. We need to understand how do we learn to supplant it? How do we learn to grow different desires? How do we learn to deal with and overcome this kind of wrong desire in our own hearts and our own lives? We're looking for happiness and satisfaction. And we believe it will be found in this and that. And it's not just the area of sexual immorality. Feelings and desires can drive us into all kinds of destructive behavior. Many of us struggle with feelings of anger. And our lives can be controlled and driven by anger. They can be controlled and driven by greed, by envy. They can be controlled and driven by pride, by fear, by insecurity. And none of those things are what God wants our lives to be driven and controlled by. What God wants for you and I is to set us free. He wants to set us free that we might actually be able to become more like him, experiencing ever-increasing joy, abounding in love, and living in peace. How do we do that? How do we supplant these lies that are within us and begin to learn to walk in a more wonderful way? I want to suggest three things for us this morning. The first one Paul leads into right here as we conclude our passage. He says to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You know, we live in a day and age where people have more freedom and choice than they probably ever had in the history of the world. Now, the Thessalonians were in danger of something. Most theologians believe that they had a distorted understanding of the return of Christ. They thought Jesus is coming back right now. So some of them were literally quitting their jobs and like, I'm going to go sit on a hill and just wait for Jesus to come back. The reality is when we are not putting our hand to the plow and being about the work that God gave us, we are in far greater danger of temptation to walk in a way that is not what God has for us. And so Paul is telling them, put your head down. Make it your ambition. Lead a quiet life. Don't be running all over trying to find life here and find life there. Instead, attend to your own business. Work with your hands, and then you will be able to behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Not only does being about our business provide for us financially, but it helps us to not be so lonely and bored and open to temptation in our hearts. You know when David got in great temptation with Bathsheba? Do you know how the whole account starts? In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David stayed home. David wasn't about the business he was supposed to be about. He wasn't doing what his position demanded, what God called him to. He chose to just step back, and in his idleness came the opportunity for temptation that led to destruction for generations to come. So the first thing is that we need to learn to become the kind of people who understand how to live a self-controlled life. 
And part of how we learn that is just being faithful with what God has put in front of us. Listen to one more excerpt from the book Renovation of the Heart. Today, people constantly have to decide what to do. Thus, they will almost invariably be governed by feelings. And they will in general lack any significant degree of self-control. This will turn their life into a mere drift through days and years, which addictive behavior promises to allow them to endure. Self-control is the steady capacity to direct yourself to accomplish what you have chosen or decided to do and be. Self-control means that you do what you don't want to do when that is needed and do not do what you want to do or feel like doing when that is needed. In people without rock-solid character, feeling is a deadly enemy of self-control and will always subvert it. The mongoose of a disciplined will under God and good is the only match for the cobra of feeling. What a word picture. The first thing that we need to learn to do is to learn to be people who live by and for something other than our feelings and desires, but who are learning self-control. The second thing, in this room are people who are struggling with desires that are not God's best for you. They may be in the area of sexual immorality. Many men and women struggle in this area. They may be in other areas that I listed. We need to not sit there and continue to live in denial and pretend to one another like everything is okay. Here at Lincoln Berean, so many lives have been changed through our pure desire ministry, through our care groups, through our counseling resources, uh, through our support and recovery. There are so many ministries to help people walk a journey toward freedom. To learn to not be driven by the feelings and desires that are not God's very best for you. Reach out. Step out. Talk to our information center, to a pastor. Get connected into a place that can help you begin to be set free. That's the second thing. The third and final thing is a step every one of us in this room can take starting right now today. It is simply, again, being honest with God. If you have a tendency to desire that which is not a part of God's very best for you, tell him. Admit it. He already knows. God, I, I actually want this. Sometimes I want sexual immorality. Sometimes, Lord, I, I'm so driven by anger, I want to I hurt another person. Whatever those desires might be, say that to God. And then here's a prayer you can start to pray. You can pray it 20 times a day. It's very simple. Lord, help me to not want that which I now want. If you want something that's not his best for you, ask him to begin to change your heart, to change your desires. Help me to not want that which I now want. Or the inverse is true. Lord, help me to want that which I do not want. If holiness sounds like a negative and restrictive thing to you, just begin to admit that to God. Say, God, help me to want you. Help me to want your way. I confess to you, I don't want it but help me to want that which I do not want. And why do we have wrong desires? Where do they come from? They come from wrong beliefs. Anyone who is struggling with temptation towards sexual immorality or any other feeling-driven behavior, it's because they believe that will bring them life. What do we want? Happiness, satisfaction. 
Nobody has an affair or gets engaged in sexual immorality because they think it'll ruin their life and others. They are believing in some way at some point, this will make me feel alive. This will bring me life and happiness and this will satisfy. So we must acknowledge to God, Lord, I'm believing lies. And I can start simply by saying, Lord, help me to not believe that which I now believe. Lord, that seems so attractive to me that I believe life is found here. Help me, God, to begin to not believe that which I now believe. And again, the inverse. Lord, help me to believe that which I do not now believe. I don't understand you, God. I don't understand how to find joy in you. I don't understand how you are the source of love. I don't understand all of those things. And I don't really believe the fullness of life is found in you. Help me, God, to begin to believe that which I do not now believe. You see, the reality is, the problem is not having desire. It's we desire the wrong things. In fact, C.S. Lewis would argue that our desires are too weak, not too strong. I love his essay, The Weight of Glory. Listen to what he says in it. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is even meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. God's desire is that we would understand he is inviting us to walk in a far more wonderful way. God's desire is good for you and through you. God's will is that we would be sanctified, set apart to walk in a more wonderful way. Jesus, we pray that we would embrace your will and to believe the truth both about the things that lie to us as well as about your goodness and what you offer us in yourself. Jesus, thank you for what you purchased for us. You made all this a possible, and now we just live it out, Lord. You have won all of these things for us. Oh God, teach us to walk in your way, that we might experience your love, your joy, your peace, and that we might actually become the kind of people who can genuinely love the people around us and every person in the world. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.